a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies, they're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. This is where we gather to revel in wrong think. It's also where we uh, provide uh, timely solutions for the reality crisis that we currently find ourselves in. I can't think of a better uh, person to consult on such matters than my friend and fellow wrong thinker, Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, how are you today? I'm good. Amazingly, I haven't keeled over with blood pouring from my mouth, despite the fact that I haven't put a holy rag on my face low this whole year and two months now. Wow. Yeah, talk about someone living dangerously. I guess that, that would be you. Yeah, do you remember at the beginning of all of this when, when we were peppered with images of uh, supposedly depicting people in China literally just kind of keeling over with blood gushing out of their, their, their faces? Remember that? I remember it was very disturbing, yes. Yeah, yeah, and somehow that all just kind of went away, along with the whole thing about flattening the curve, uh, which apparently continues to just go up and up and up. Though, curiously enough, um, I was listening to the news, uh, which was difficult the other day, and now the cases, the cases are suddenly half what they were in early January. I wonder why. Well, it can only be because we finally got Trump out of there and, and a <laughs> responsible adult in the room, because I'm sure he has That's complete a- control of this. You know he does, exactly. Uh, the ethereal glow of St. Joe is the curative power that we all require. Kind of like, you remember Ernest Angley back in the 70s, the TV evangelist? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and at least Ernest had the, he had the merit of being funny. Right. Well, the, the whole... Um there, there's a couple of different things we can talk about. Let's talk about the mask thing first. Um, yep. I understand in, in the wake of the Super Bowl, which I, I didn't watch, so I couldn't tell you how woke it was, but uh, I understand yep. there's a bit of a kerfuffle uh, because uh, people gathered for the Super Bowl, so mm-hmm. there was concern about it being the Super Spreader Bowl, and then uh, Tom Brady <laughs> apparently yep. offended the powers that be. What was up with that? Well, he had, uh, he had the guts, uh, because he's largely immune, to uh, show his face. I mean, you can do that when you're uh, a seven-time Super Bowl winner, uh, incredibly valuable to the franchise and incredibly popular. Um, In a way, he's sort of like a high-end version of what you and I are in that we work for ourselves and aren't beholden to some corporate master and and have the ability to say, you know what, I'm not doing what you tell me to. Sorry, I'm going to do what I want to do. So kudos to him for doing that, though, of course, the usual suspects among the acolytes of the sickness cult have gone absolutely berserk about his bad example to the people. Yeah, they they do make a big deal out of it. In fact, I noticed the article you had double diapered meltdown. Yeah. There's the CNN reporter, and she, by gosh, she's wearing two masks. That's that's how woke she is. Yeah, you know, a, a little more than a year ago, if you'd seen somebody like that, they would have been quietly taken away to a hospital, a mental hospital. And but instead, now this 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 pathology, this this weaponized hypochondria that I that I, I like to call it, has spread to such a degree that this, this kind of pathology, this kind of abnormality, this unreasonable, deranged fear of sickness is, is kind of being, it kind of it is, being inculcated as, as a normal way to go about your life. Uh, thank God, though, a lot of people have decided they're not going to do that, including the thousands of people who went to have fun at the Super Bowl 
uh, and after the Super Bowl and who actually lived their lives instead of living in fear which is what these double and triple diapering people want us to do. Last week I shared with you my experience of traveling to a nearby state and, uh, and experiencing mask-free environment for the first time in a mm-hmm. long time. I shared that experience on Facebook, and I was very careful not to be too specific about where I went mm-hmm. and who yep. I was with. And, you know, and, and, and what's funny is I received so many private messages from people say, hey, was it this place? Was it that place? And I'm like, no, mm-hmm. but thanks for the heads up because now I know other places where I would feel comfortable mm-hmm. going. Yeah. But, you, but you have to be so careful because if I were to say, hey, I was at this restaurant and there wasn't exactly. anybody in sight wearing a mask, the, uh, you know, the destructo mob will descend on them and try to destroy them. Sure they will. We are in the position of the French underground in Paris in 1942. We have to be very careful not to, uh, not to alert the authorities who will descend upon us, but uh, we can be subversive and thereby undermine the authorities. And I think uh, that is, is beginning to wax rather than wane. I think people are beginning to get tired of it. They are beginning to realize that at a bare minimum they have been, uh, they've been lied to, that this has been exaggerated, that what's being done is grotesquely disproportionate uh, and is causing more harm than the things supposedly being treated. Talk to me about hypochondria. I know in your, in your column mm-hmm. about weaponized hypochondria, you actually provided a definition. And as I read that yep. definition, I went, ooh, that's pretty tough to deny. Sure. Well, I mean, you go look it up. You know, you can, uh, there's uh, the DSM, which is the, the medical textbook that lists and then defines various medical conditions. And hypochondria is considered a, a psychological problem uh, defined by an unreasonable, uh, obsessive fear of sickness and health. And does that not fit to a T, what's happened right now uh, in our country? Oh. You know, you're, talking about, you're talking about a sickness that, for the most part, for most of us, people who don't have some significant underlying health problem, who are not very elderly, this is a really a non-issue for us, at least in terms of getting dead. Um, but what's hypochondriacal about it is people are now terrified of getting sick, as if that's somehow abnormal. You know, a year and a half ago, we, people would get a cold, they'd get the flu, they'd be laid up for a few days, their kids would bring something home, and they would complain to their friends, oh, gosh, I'm feeling terrible, I'm, you know, I've got a bug. And that was normal. Now, if somebody coughs or sneezes in a public place, people freak out because somehow they have been made to believe that it is, it is abnormal to ever catch a cold. Or they're, or they're made to feel like they were irresponsible somehow. I, I have a couple of really close friends who recently have gone through having COVID themselves. Mm-hmm. And for one of them, it was just like a you know, stuffy head cold. For one, it was like mm-hmm. full body aches and fatigue. Yep. I mean, it was a pretty miserable experience. But yep. in both cases, they were like, oh, I just, I hate the feeling that, uh, you know, people, people look at me with this, this sense of, well, what did you do? Or, or more importantly, what didn't you do, you know, that ended sure. up in you contracting that? Like it's, like it's their fault that they contracted a virus. And that's why I use the term weaponization of this, because you're absolutely correct. Uh, other than living in a hermetically sealed bubble, you're going to expose yourself to bacteria, germs, viruses just by living. That's part of life. You're not you know, being intentional about that. It's just a necessary part of living, just like sometimes you go outside and it rains, and you might not have your umbrella or a raincoat, and you get wet. That's life. Uh, you know, the way to avoid that, if you want to be neurotic about it, is to sit home and never go out because it might rain. Oh, my God, I can't go outside because it might, you know, I might get wet, which, if you said that, would, would mark you as somebody who really needs to go see a psychiatrist to work out what your problem is. 
Yeah, it's it's a great article. Actually, that and your uh, double double diapered meltdown article, almost <laughs> phenomenal articles. That uh, you know, it's just, it's a breath of sanity in a time where even though the numbers are coming down, I'm not seeing people relax. How about you? Yeah. Well, it depends where you go. You know, there are these these sort of oases of normalcy that you can find where people like us who've always been somewhat skeptical because we did our due diligence uh, rather than sit and listen to what CNN and Fauci were telling us, we actually looked into it and found out that this was being exaggerated, hyped, uh, perhaps maliciously and deliberately. Um, but the unfortunately, uh, half to two-thirds of the population probably get their information from CNN and from these mainstream media organs that never qualify uh, what they're telling people, they never provide context, and so people are continually terrified of what's going on, which is deliberate. This is, this is, in my opinion, it should be obvious at this point that this is a contrived crisis designed purposefully to terrorize the population, to keep everybody cringing, fearful, isolated, and willing to put up with things that in other circumstances they would never tolerate. Right. And, and particularly politicians, uh, TV news, and I'm trying to think who was the third one. There's, there's three entities that have particularly benefited from this because of the crisis atmosphere. And yeah, big corporate chains like, like Walmart and Amazon. Yeah, it's, it's strange how uh, it's, it's given access to power. Oh, social media was also one of them. Mm-hmm. Social media yep. has kind of become the gatekeeper of the unwashed, you know, and here's what, yep. you, here's what you're allowed to know and here's what you aren't. But uh, the bottom line is, yes, there's a virus out there. Yes, for some people it can be serious. But we're, we're expected to pretend that this is the most deadly thing ever, and it's costing Absolutely, us. Absolutely, which is palpably false. And also, uh, it's not unique. Again, every qualifier, every statement that you just said with regard to, yeah, there's a virus out there, yeah, it's dangerous for some people, has been true since time immemorial right. of the flu. Yes. And that's essentially what this is. <laughs> yes, it's perhaps a more virulent form, but if you dig into the numbers... Most people, I mean, when I say most, that's an inadequate word. Almost all people do not die from it. So, yeah, okay, you're going to get sick for a couple of days maybe if you get this. Is that the end of the world? Does that justify ending the world, which is essentially what they're, they're trying to do? Okay, hold that thought. We've got to take a quick break. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest, and we are going to be back to talk about a couple of other things, including the need for a reality czar, at least that uh, some people are calling for. Yes, we are in a reality crisis, or so we're told. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. My guest is Eric Peters from epautos.com. That is a site that should be bookmarked on your phone, your tablet, your laptop, your computer, because uh, there's a lot of great reading material there any time of the day, including a lot of great automotive stuff. Maybe we'll have some time to touch on that uh, uh, before our visit's over today. But Eric, I'm hearing credible calls, well, I should say calls from sources that normally would be regarded as credible, uh, that what we really need in this age of misinformation and um, unapproved opinions is somehow we need some kind of a reality czar. There's a New York Times writer that apparently has said this is this is what's needed, a truth commission. Give me your best take on uh, 
what that is supposed well, to mean and why that's a great idea or not such a great idea. Well, first of all, I would, I would hardly call the New York Times credible with regard to anything. Um, and secondly, I think that uh, George Orwell did not intend to write an instruction manual when he wrote 1984, but that's how it's being used. Uh, what they're talking about when they use the term realities are uh, is to control people's thoughts by limiting what they are allowed to read and hear, and more, even more profoundly than that, uh, to, to, to castigate, to shame, even to punish them for, as we always say at the beginning of the show, wrong think. Uh, this, this goes also to the, the, the issue of the rampant editorializing that characterizes almost all of journalism today. I've been in journalism all my life, professionally for 30-something years now. And there was a time when if you were a news reporter, you kept your opinion out of the news. You, you, you conveyed the facts, and you let the reader decide what their interpretation of those facts would be. Now, editorializing is everywhere. There's almost no distinction between the news page and the editorial page. We are being lectured to by both sides, by the right and the left, about what we're supposed to believe. And that is part of the problem with, with this whole reality czar thing. If we had a functional press that had some integrity and that restricted what it put onto the newspaper and in news stories to the facts without the editorializing, we wouldn't have this problem with people having skewed perceptions about what reality is. But in any event, I, think, I can think of few things that are more dangerous than empowering the government to, to be able to tell us what we are allowed to think and what, what form of thought is acceptable think. I, I think the, the conclusion that, that concerns me the most is if you allow government to become that arbiter of what is real and what isn't, um, it, at some level you are nodding to the idea that some thoughts or some ideas should be criminalized. Of course. And also government has an interest, just like every entity and every individual has an interest. Uh, what is the interest of government? Well, it's, it's interested in making sure that it's not subject to criticism and exposed when it's wrong or incompetent, because that will not do. That creates problems for the authority, the perception of the government. It used to be that, that journalists had an interest in, in holding government accountable, corporations accountable by presenting the facts, including inconvenient facts. Remember those days? Oh, yeah. Journalism doesn't do that anymore. And that, I think, is one of the great crises that we're dealing with in this country. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of at a loss uh, as far as how to repair it, uh, other than by people deciding to stop listening to editorializing when they want news and seek out sources of news that are credible, that give you all the facts, and, and give you the dignity as a human being with a brain to evaluate those facts and make up your own mind without being told what you're supposed to think. You know, I claim I claim to be a truth seeker, and and I don't say that like, and I have cornered the market on truth because I'm very much a work in progress. But what that means is, I have uh, I've come to the understanding that most sources, whether I agree with them or not, are th- there's a bias of some kind, and so it's up yep. to me to be able to sort fact from fiction, and and I'm okay with doing that. I'm okay with doing the heavy lifting. Something that I have perceived, and I know I'm not alone in this, is that much of what we call news today is really political opinion masquerading as news. Absolutely. Bald-facedly and belligerently, the New York Times being a very strident example of that. It's clear from the first sentence, just from the, the words that are used and from the headline, what this article wants you to think, isn't it? That's the test to determine whether you're reading a biased article. Look at what the headline is, examine the words, and see whether those words were chosen specifically to orient your mind along a certain track, as opposed to simply some kind of an objective presentation of here's what happened, 
and then, you know, dot, 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 you make up your own mind. Right. I think you have just, you've given a very workable um, clarification of the difference between uh, narrative, which is storytelling, which relies on emotion-laden words, versus reporting the facts, which is what uh, journalism is supposed to be. Absolutely. You know, if we had a functional press, uh, let's go back 40 or 50 years, when we did, this business with the holy rag would have been critically examined by journalists who would have gone into the meat of it and looked into the facts, the science, and simply um, elaborated that and pointed out, well, there, there is no peer-reviewed study that indicates that wearing a bandana over your mouth is going to prevent you from getting a virus. That's, a, that's just an example of, of the sort of thing that would happen. Whereas you couldn't have gotten away with in the past uh, writing an article about how it's your civic duty and obligation to wear a mask. Uh, in a news article, and yet that happens now all the time, repeatedly. Well, it's uh, I, I'm grateful for people like you, who unfortunately, like me, are we're 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 kind of on the outside. I mean, we don't aspire to be on the fringes or on the margins of society, but lo and behold, that's where we are. Um, and and I guess this we're the is, counterculture. I, I guess isn't, isn't right it, on, it, man. Isn't it, <laughs> it's it's ironic the the shift that's occurred because now to be. Uh, what we are, a wrong thinker, or at least a questioner of orthodoxies, marks us out as sort of what the hippies were back in the 60s when they were the counterculture. Now, to be a libertarian or a conservative or just anybody who is thoughtful and reasonable, frankly, uh, is to, to mark you out as a latter-day hippie. But I, I embrace it. I'm, you know, that's fine. If that's, if that's what I am, so be it. I think one of the things that I've had to get used to, and I'd love to get your take on this, is uh, as much as I would like to correct this problem on a large scale, um, I don't think there is any hope of swaying the masses. Um, I think that uh, any changes that come about uh, because of our commitment to truth or our, abil- our, our efforts to publish truth or speak truth are going to be very, uh, very small and very individualized, at least initially. Well, it's conceited as well as hopeless and frustrating to think that you can affect change on a mass scale, because you can't. All you can do, uh, and this is empowering, is change things in your own circle, in your own life. You can do things personally uh, that will affect change, and that's very gratifying, as by just not wearing the holy rag, or as by uh, being willing to talk about why you don't wear the holy rag to your friends and families, and perhaps have a thoughtful conversation with them. All of these things that you can picture a series of circles ever outward expanding, that we can do as individuals ultimately do scale. But you and I, as a single person, really don't have the ability to, as you say, persuade the masses, and we shouldn't even attempt to do that. Right. Well, and and masses, typically, anything that the masses go for is going to be pretty transitory and, and uh, yeah. temporary, you know, at best. Um it's it's the it's the grassroots starting at the individual kind of change and, and change of heart working its way up. That's where real change takes hold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's the saying about people going crazy in crowds but recovering their sanity one by one? Something right. along those lines. Right. I, I always thought that was a profound and wise uh, way to look at it, and it is. You know, you can't stop a stampeding herd, but individually. Uh, you might be able to persuade or encourage another person. I know I've had success in that. I've got a a small but steadily growing group of people in my area uh, who are refusing to put on the holy rag, and we get together and we go shopping and we go to places and we network and we let each other know, sort of like you and I were talking about off the air, under the table, when we find a place that has a kind of a don't ask, don't tell policy, 
um, about the wearing of the holy rag. So it's to just kind of continue to, to promote and encourage that, but in a quiet way and in a small-scale way that can become a large-scale way if enough of us do it. Eric, we've got about 30 seconds. Tell everybody about your website and where to find it. Oh, sure. It's easy enough. It's epautos.com, and of course, you can just Google me, or Google, oh my God, I said the unholy word, ah! <laughs> duck, 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 go me, uh, and, and you'll, find, you'll find it readily enough. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm out there, and uh, you can find stuff about the things we've been talking about, and if you're just interested in cars, if you want to get a take on a new vehicle, uh, if you have a question regarding a maintenance, um, maintenance problem, or you just want to talk about classic cars or motorcycles, it's a good place to go. Okay, I'll have a link to your website in the show notes. Eric Peters, thanks so much for spending some time with me today. Always, Brian. Thank you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. This is one that has really been uh, standing out to me for the last few days. And I understand most of the, the outrage that I'm seeing expressed here, or at least the people questioning, wait a minute, what? Is based on one New York Times columnist who is openly calling for, you know all we really need around here? We need a reality czar to, uh, to tell us, you know, what is real and what isn't. In other words, to keep the populace within the boundaries of approved opinion. And it's so Orwellian. It's, it's almost, it's, unless you've read anything from Orwell recently, it's, it's so dystopian to see calls for a reality czar to, you know, oversee this battle against unapproved opinions. Now, I'll grant you, misinformation is a real problem. And I've seen a lot of good people who, um, for whatever reason, can can find themselves, um, well, misled. But I don't believe that it is, a, it is a proper function of government or a proper use of government power to basically appoint someone or, you know, uh, put someone in, in a position of power to determine what is real. I'm afraid that's something that's supposed to fall to each one of us. And that's not something that we should take lightly. Frank Ferretti, writing for Spiked Online, has a great article called Big Brother Comes to America. And this is, this is in response to these calls for a reality czar. He says, at first, I couldn't believe what I was reading. A writer for the New York Times was enthusiastically supporting a call made by several experts around the Biden administration to create a reality czar. Apparently, a reality czar is needed to counter the campaign of disinformation being pushed by bitter conservatives. Now, the New York Times commentator concedes that giving someone the authority to pronounce on what is and what isn't real sounds a little dystopian, but suggests it's warranted by the threat of disinformation and domestic extremism. Now, the experts providing the enthronement of a reality czar are unapologetic advocates of giving the government the power to decide what is true, what is real. And they hope that the establishment of a reality task force could become the tip of the spear for the federal government's response to the reality crisis. 
I'm sorry, but I, I think this is a very accurate way of putting it. Well, my folks, we live in a time of reality crisis. Frank Ferretti says, The New York Times is not alone in demanding that the government take an active role in determining what's true. Recently, New York University's Stern Center for Business and Human Rights published an alarmist report about the allegedly distorted perceptions held by millions of conservatives. Apparently, huge numbers of conservatives wrongly believe that their views are suppressed by digital platforms on partisan grounds. To prevent this view from gaining greater influence, the authors of the report call on the government to set up a new digital regulatory agency. Now, no doubt this agency would become another tip of a spear to be hurled at anyone who accuses the giant social media companies of showing bias against the political right. He says the principal aim of the Stern Center's report is to restore trust in the moral authority of the mainstream media in the U.S. It fears that millions of Americans no longer trust the media as a reliable source of information because they've bought into the belief that it's biased. Imagine that. It argues that people's distrust of the media and their wrong belief that social media are biased against conservatives will escalate in coming years, especially as social media companies increase their fact-checking operations. <clears throat> Here's a quote from the original article. Disinformation about bias contributes to the delegitimization of the platforms at a time when they're actually experimenting with more aggressive forms of fact-checking and content moderation. Not just in the case of Donald Trump, but also in connection with falsehoods about COVID-19 vaccines and conspiracy theories like QAnon. Frank Ferretti says sometimes the invention of the modern or since the invention of the modern media, people have put forward critiques of its sometimes biased nature. This has been a fairly unexceptional feature of the cultural landscape, yet now would-be reality czars have rebranded such criticisms as a false narrative and an example of political disinformation. When claims of media bias are denounced as a form of malevolent disinformation, it can only be a matter of time before such claims are criminalized. And that's the key right there. He says, one of the aims of the current campaign against disinformation is to legitimize and normalize the policing of media content. Campaigners uphold the absurd and long discredited idea of media neutrality in order to discredit alternative accounts about what the media are doing and what the social media giants are up to. But they also want to go beyond protecting the reputation of big tech. Some now want nothing less than to establish a government agency that would act as the infallible source of truth and reality. One of the experts cited by the New York Times suggests the Biden administration should set up a truth commission. No doubt anyone who questioned the biases of a Biden-led truth commission would be written off as a dangerous extremist peddling disinformation. And Frank Ferretti says this all raises a very important question. Who gets to decide what is real? Even at the best of times, he says, one should approach media outlets and news sources with a critical mindset. In the current era, <clears throat> with the flourishing of fake news and conspiracy theories, it can be challenging to distinguish between fact and fiction. But the real problem is not that the media peddles lies, although they do that sometimes. No, the problem is that politically motivated opinion now masquerades as news. Moreover, he says, in our intensely polarized political and cultural environment, the usual checks and balances that help to maintain a modicum of objectivity have become ever more feeble. 
Frank Ferretti says cultural polarization has led to a situation in which there is an unprecedented lack of consensus about the realities facing society. As a reader of numerous newspapers and online publications, he says, I'm struck by how many contrasting truths and versions of reality I encounter on a daily basis. When I want to engage with a narrative that calls into question my reality and lived experience as someone who lives in the UK, he says, I turn to the New York Times. One of its recent headlines struck me as being a classic example of disinformation. It said, Britain's ethnic minorities are being left for dead. Now, he says any reader of this fantasy story would strongly believe that Britain is an unusually malevolent society. This inverted reality of Britain as an almost evil country is part of a broader pattern at the New York Times. The paper always seems determined to present British society in the worst possible light. Britain is undergoing a full-blown identity crisis, gloated a reporter recently, before adding that it is a hollowed-out country, ill at ease with itself, deeply provincial, and engaged in controlled suicide. He says a truly objective reality czar surely would have to busy himself or herself with challenging the New York Times' questionable depictions of 21st century Britain. However, it would be just as wrong for a government-appointed ministry of truth to give its verdict on the New York Times' campaign of disinformation against the UK as it would be for it to make pronouncements on those who claim that social media are biased against conservatives. He says, for centuries, advocates of democracy, tolerance, and freedom of speech have upheld the belief that government should not be in the business of dictating a doctrinal version of the truth. Nor should government try to direct or suppress people's beliefs and views. This conviction helps to protect freedom of speech in American society. As the legal scholar Stephen Gay argued, under the liberal interpretation of the First Amendment, it's much easier to defend the protection of speech because the government is robbed of its usual justifications for suppressing that speech. He says freedom of speech is truly protected when it's recognized that government has no authority to use its legal authority to identify and enforce any particular vision of right and wrong, truth and untruth, said Gay. And it is when the public accepts that the government has no paternalistic role over matters of the intellect, just as it has no paternalistic role over matters of the soul, that tolerance becomes a way of life rather than just a shallow gesture. Whenever the state is given the power to identify or enforce a particular version of right and wrong, truth and untruth, freedoms of belief, expression, and speech are in serious trouble. He says the establishment of a reality czar and in effect a ministry of truth would deprive people of the right to determine what they hold to be true. One of the privileges of a citizen in a democracy is that they have both the right and the duty to participate in truth-seeking. Truth is not something handed down to us from on high. It's something we acquire through deliberation and debate. Now, there's much more to this article. I'm just going to skip ahead to the end. He says, in a world where falsehoods proliferate, free debate is more important than ever to help people learn for themselves what is real. John Mill Stewart, or John Stuart Mill, rather, understood. Placing limits on freedom of speech constitutes a far greater threat to democracy than the erroneous views promoted by conspiracy theorists and fake news entrepreneurs. Because once the authority of speech is undermined, then public life itself is threatened, as people lose the opportunity to discuss, debate, and clarify the issues that confront our society. There's a lot more to this article, and I'm going to encourage you, trip on over to the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. 
Show notes for February 9th, 2021. Check it out for yourself. I think he's right, though. We do not need a ministry of truth. We need to be truth seekers ourselves. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Ah, there is so much to pack into this hour of the show. And yet, I'm, I'm happy to try to do it. All right, where's my sledgehammer? I gotta, gotta force a few more things in here. Actually, I have an article here from Annie Holmquist, the editor of intellectualtakeout.org. The other F word of the managerial elites. Uh, relax, it's not the one you're thinking of. But it's... Uh, it's so fascinating for all the talk we heard about how there, you know, you, there was no election fraud. This was the most open, honest, and above-board election of our lifetimes, and no one should be questioning it. I don't know if you've seen the article recently published by Time magazine, but Time published this article titled The Secret History of the Shadow Campaign That Saved the 2020 Election. It's something you really need to read for yourself because it's pretty long and it's pretty detailed, but I think that's the point. As Annie says here, having been told constantly by the media in recent months that conspiracy theories and underground movements are bad, she says one wouldn't be blamed for turning tail and running as far as possible when such an article like this one in Time is published, especially in a day when a congresswoman can be punished by her fellow lawmakers for having entertained conspiracy theories in the past. But there it was. Not only a headline, but a lengthy article from a prominent, long-established arm of the mainstream media claiming and providing evidence of, quote, the inside story of the conspiracy to save the 2020 election. Based on access to the group's inner workings, never-before-seen documents, and interviews with dozens of those involved from across the political spectrum. Okay. <laughs> so so there were people working and manipulating behind the scenes. Amazing. As uh, Annie Holmquist says, Intrigued, I continued to read Molly Ball's expression that those who worked in this movement are so proud of their feet they cannot bear to keep it quiet. They saved this world, this well-funded cabal of powerful people from all backgrounds, working together behind the scenes to influence perceptions, change rules and laws, steer media coverage, and control the flow of information. In other words, she says, all those claims of a fraudulent election, which we were told were practically treasonous, were true? And he says, oh, I'm sorry, did I say fraud? Silly me, I should have used the alternative F word, fortify. These people weren't rigging the election, Ball assures us, they were fortifying it. Semantics, ah, they make all the difference. Now, Ball goes on to say, the public needs to understand the system's fragility in order to ensure that democracy in America endures. In other words, the system, or what they refer to as democracy, is all important and can never be questioned, even if lying, cheating, stealing, and mass suppression of information must take place in order to preserve it. And I love what Annie Holmquist says next. She says, well, in laying it out bluntly like that, one has to wonder, was the system worth all that effort? What kind of government do we really have if, as this article seems to suggest, it has to be preserved by hook or by crook? Some investigation into the forms of government may be helpful. 
In this arena, the late American political philosopher Russell Kirk offers some clarity, particularly in his exposition of Montesquieu and the influence his writings had on the American founders. Montesquieu, Kirk writes, sees three main patterns of government, the republic, the monarchy, and despotism. America was established to be a republic, but does this definition still fit our nation? Not exactly. The republic is sustained by the citizens' virtue, the monarchy by the king's honor, and despotism, like that of the Ottomans, by the subject's fear. Virtue? Honor? It's hard to say that either of these traits are characteristics of our nation, particularly after what's written in the Time article on the election. But fear? Now that seems to fit our nation to a T. Is it possible that our government is one of despotism, even if, as the Time article insists, democracy has triumphed? and the despot, known as Trump, has now been kicked out the door? The allegedly despotic government of the Trump administration certainly has not been replaced with a virtuous one. The strings pulled and moves made by those determined to depose Trump all signal an end-justifies-the-means type of government, devoid of anything exemplary and upright. It's a power struggle that thumbed its nose at millions of voters, declaring that the system knows what's best for the little peons. Now, Kirk goes on to say, Ordinarily, a people do not choose one constitutional form or another. They find themselves necessarily under the sort of government which is suited to their social circumstances. In a sense, he says, any people obtain the kind of government they deserve, or at any rate, the kind of government which their history and their conditions of existence have brought upon them. End quote. And Annie Holmquist says, this is where we find ourselves. And it's perhaps this realization which brings such a sense of fear over the average Joes living in middle America outside of the system's swamp. They're not the stupid ones. Instead, they see clearly how their voice has been co-opted by the elite ruling few who claim to know what's best for the rest of the country, but who have effectually delivered despotism. History repeats itself, for ironically, one of Time's former editors, Whitaker Chambers, noted this same theme at work during his testimony against communist spy Alger Hiss. Chambers was the little man going against the Goliath of the system, while every big and powerful person and organization turned a blind eye to the truth. It was the enlightened and the powerful, the clamorous proponents of the open mind and the common man who snapped their minds shut in a pro-hiss psychosis, psychosis rather, writes Chambers, of a kind of which in an individual patient means the simple failure of the ability to distinguish between reality and unreality, and in a nation is the warning is a warning rather of the end. end quote. She says Ball's article for Time gloats over the fact that the elites have prevented the end of the world by fortifying the election to suit their purposes. But perhaps such fortifying only shows that we are hurtling towards some type of an end all the more quickly. Sorry, this isn't a lot of good news. I probably should have warned you of that (laughs) beforehand, but she's right. She's right. I I think the best comment I saw on that Time article, and again, the, the article's titled The Secret History of the Shadow Campaign That Saved the 2020 Election. There's a link in Annie's story, which you'll find in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. But when I saw that and when I read that article, my first thought was, this is just like O.J. Simpson's book he wrote. Remember that? If I did it. After all those assurances, everything was above board. Everything was great. No. No. And they, can't, they couldn't help themselves. The ones who pulled the strings and manipulated things, they can't help but brag about it. We did it. We did it. They're so proud of themselves. 
I guess it's as good a time as any to remind ourselves that, look, a little bit of good doesn't justify evil. These, uh, you know, ends justify the means kind of uh, thinkers are taking us to a not-so-good place. Kent McManigal has this quick reminder for us, and, and I think this is right on target. He says, over and over again, I'm stunned to see the lengths people will go to so they can keep believing in political government. No matter what it does, no matter the actual results, they defend its existence in the face of 5,000-plus years of evidence. Even if they admit government sometimes commits great evil, more than any other group has ever managed to commit, they won't face the flawed premise it's built upon, that wrong isn't wrong if enough people sanction it. They seem to imagine that any potential good justifies the very real evil. Now, Kent McManigal says, I don't accept that. Even as I'm able to recognize that the good can, that can sometimes be accomplished, though never justified by committing evil. He says, I accept that sometimes government does the right thing. Even government's gang of thugs occasionally does something worthwhile. Sometimes government gets good results. But he says, where I part ways with the government supremacists is that I recognize that good results or even sometimes doing the right thing doesn't excuse the institutional theft and or coercion required to get there. Doing it wrong and having it turn out well anyway never excuses doing the wrong thing. He says, was any medical knowledge gained by the Tuskegee syphilis study? Probably, but that doesn't justify it. It was still evil. Might mask mandates and forced shutdowns slow the spread of a virus? It doesn't matter, because it's still wrong to do those things, even if you're really scared of the virus. Might draconian border security and immigration control prevent some problems? Probably, but that doesn't make it right. Get rid of the root cause of the potential problems, voting, welfare, and anti-defense legislation, instead of thrashing at the leaves. He says it's entirely possible you could find some innocent individual who is still alive because some specific, of some specific anti-gun legislation. Even if there wasn't a trade-off with lives lost as a result of such counterfeit rules, it's still wrong to violate the natural human right to own and carry weapons. Yet because people keep asking the wrong questions, because they either don't like the right ones or they don't know what to ask, they keep getting the wrong answers. And Kent McManigal says this allows them to keep believing that somehow, some way, political government is something other than a cancer. He says responsible people who have worthwhile principles have to accept that they have no right to violate others just because they have or believe they have a good goal in mind. I mean, this applies at the macro level. It applies at the personal level as well. A little bit of good doesn't justify evil. This will be in the show notes as well. Check it out for yourself. It's at the BrianHydeShow.com show notes for February 9th, 2021. This is The Brian Hyde Show.